First Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 5 this morning. If you'll follow along in the reading of God's Word. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and in, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. Gracious, loving Father, I just praise you for your written word. And Father, I praise you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. I praise you how you use a, a fisherman to become the leader of your disciples. And Father, how we can rejoice in the sufferings of our brothers in the past, and take to heart these tremendous blessings that the Apostle Peter is sharing with us. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, our spiritual eyes shall be opened and we can grab a hold of this, the tremendous praise and rejoicing that the Apostle Peter is sharing with suffering uh, children. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, uh, each of our lives will bring, kingdom, will bring glory to your kingdom and that we will continue to walk worthy of our calling until that time that our race is run and we stand before our judge and master. In your son's precious name, amen. As we have started in this epistle from the apostle Peter, we have studied that it was a time of tremendous persecution for Christians. Christians were being martyred uh, for their faith. They were being tortured in such hideous ways that we cannot even comprehend it. They do not even recognize what we hear of the atrocities of the world today cannot even come close to what Christians were going through at this time. We have studied that Nero had set the city of Rome to fire and had promptly blamed Christians for it, and it became a wholesale slaughter for those who were walking with Christ. Peter is writing to people who are scattered, God's elect, who are scattered through the world in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, Bithynia who are being persecuted, who are being lynched for their faith. I heard this, this morning, Willie had shared with me a magazine he had gotten, and a man was asked to denounce Christ as deity, to be set free. That's all he had to do, is denounce Christ as deity. And yet, this man was put to, to, to the stake and burned. And not having clothes or by the mercies of God, he would not catch on fire. And then an executioner came out and stabbed him. And all that the Roman government wanted from this man was him to deny Christ. Just a very easy statement. You don't have to do it in your heart. Just tell me that you deny Christ. And yet this man gave up his life for that. And this is the same persecution that Peter is writing to Christians. Some of us will say to us, why do we study this passage or this epistle if it's tremendous suffering? There is coming a time when you will have to suffer for Christ. There is no doubt in my mind. There is coming a time that you may not have to be give your life for Christ, but you may have to surrender your job. There are times when we are ashamed of the gospel. We are ashamed of who we are. And these, this epistle and these passages should instill in us a hunger to stand firm for God and know that we are His chosen. Know that He has given us something that the world craves, a living hope. This is a tremendous, tremendous praise to God Almighty 
and a world of hostility toward those who followed Christ. This would be considered by many theologians to be called a doxology. A doxology is praise, tremendous praise to God. As I studied for this and as I was looking through the, the passages of Scripture, the word that came to me uh, that is the key out of these passages is inheritance, our inheritance. Peter has just encouraged the people that God has chosen you even though the world hates you and despises you and is killing you, God loves you. And even though the turmoil that you are looking at as coming to you, Peter is telling them now, look at your inheritance. Do not look at the problem that you have. Look at what God has given you. Look at your inheritance. Get your eyes off the problem. Get your eyes on God. This inheritance will cause us to bless God, bring praises unto Him. It will cause us to adore God. It will cause us to exalt God. But it will also cause us and bring us to a humbling worship of God. The inheritance that is spoken of here is spoken of many times in the Old Testament. It is an inheritance that is passed down uh, in the Jewish traditions. It was given from a Jewish father to his children. And he would pass it down. Uh, we, most of us have probably read the story of the prodigal son, and the prodigal son took his inheritance and squandered it. This is the same inheritance. If you take the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, and you read of the earthly inheritance that the nation of Israel was offered in Deuteronomy on the land of Canaan, this inheritance that God had set aside for them is the same word used here. It is inheritance. Their heavenly father had given the nation of Israel an inheritance. It's not by anything we do. Some of us here today may have at some point in our lives received an inheritance from a grandparent, from maybe a father or a mother. And it is not because of something that you have done. You did not earn the inheritance. It was just the fact that you were born into a given family and therefore you received that inheritance. This is what Peter is trying to bring these persecuted Christians to look at. Look at your inheritance. <clears throat> People of Israel, as I was saying, were given an earthly inheritance. Our inheritance is laid up in heaven. Israel was given an earthly inheritance. The children of God... Uh, are always the children of God. We are in this place now. We are ambassadors for the king. We are pilgrims just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. But no matter where we're at in this planet, we are still children of God. And we still have an eternal inheritance. The heirs of God are the chosen, and we are joint heirs with Christ. You know, I've made a, a comment a couple of times, and you get people's eyebrows to raise up a little bit, that when God dies... I'm an heir to the throne, but I'm not holding my breath waiting on him to die. But in essence, being adopted into the kingdom of heaven, that is what has happened to us. As children of God, you are joint heirs to the king. It's like Charles and Diana. They have the two children, Prince William. He's an heir to the throne. I mean, right now, his main focus in life is whether he gets a polo pony or whether he gets a certain game, or gets to go on vacation with his mother or his father. These are the ideas that he has in his mind. But this child is royalty. He is going to be given into the kingdom of England. And so many times Christians fall into that. We see a small temporal bobble that we think is something that we would really like to have, and yet we are royalty. 
The whole earth is his. He created it. Why should we ever be sidetracked by a bubble, by a way of life, by a house, by a job? We are royalty. Peter refers in this epistle also in chapter 2, verse 5 and chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the royal priesthood. priesthood. Very interesting thought came to mind in this. As I was preparing in Joshua 13.33, they have taken the land of milk and honey, the land that God had given to the nation of Israel, and all the tribes of Israel received a portion of this land, except for the tribe of Levi. And why did they not receive an inheritance? Because they were the royal priesthood. Their inheritance was in heaven. Their inheritance was God. The tribe of Levi did not receive an earthly inheritance. I believe in my mind as I study this and I read that Peter refers to we as being royal priesthoods are the, is the same analogy. He's drawing from his Jewish lineage, his Jewish background, that we as God's chosen people, as pilgrims, and as scattered around the world, in a hostile world, we are a royal priesthood. And this is what he has called us to. Christians were dying for their faith. Christians were dying for what they were teaching. Christians were dying for, you've seen the little fish emblem that we see, everybody sticks them on cars. Well, it used to be a code. And you would draw this fish emblem, and whichever way that nose of that fish was pointing is where they were going to have teaching on Christ, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And they would draw this in the dirt, and if someone would come by that was a Roman soldier or someone who hated Christians, then you could just take your foot and, and move this fish out of the way so nobody's seen it. This symbol comes from Jesus making the statement, I will make you fishers of men. And this is what Peter is dealing with now as a persecuted people, Christians who are dying terrible deaths, being tortured just because they would not renounce that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. This message this morning is our hope and inheritance. We are blessed that this warm, balmy day, I only have but one point, and it's the elements of our inheritance. The subpoints are the source of our inheritance, the motive of our inheritance, the means of our inheritance, and the nature of our inheritance, and the security of our inheritance. I believe that today we need to grab a hold of this in a tremendous way and realize what has been laid up for us. Realize that being a royal priesthood, being a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you have an inheritance. Your Father has got something waiting for you that we can... but at this time have but a glimpse of. We cannot comprehend it. The Apostle John spent the years of ministry with Jesus Christ. He's seen Jesus Christ do many miracles. He's seen Jesus Christ walk on water. He's seen Jesus Christ raise the dead. He's seen Jesus Christ walk through a wall in His resurrected body. He's seen Jesus Christ who was dead in the ground three days rise again in a new body. But when He was on the island of Patmos and He's seen Jesus Christ in His resurrected glory, he fell on his face as, in, as if dead. This is the one who Jesus loved. This is the one who concentrated on this man, Jesus. And yet when he seen a glimpse of Jesus' glory, he fell on his face as if dead. Because he was starting to understand 
the totality of what it is to be an heir to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The source of our inheritance, verse 3, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the source of our inheritance. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty five, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. No one knows God the way Jesus knows God. No one knows Jesus the way God knows Jesus, because they are the same. They, their inherent natures are identical. They are part, just two parts of the Trinity. But they are the same. They are both had different purposes, but they are the same, identical. And no one knows the full glory and magnitude of God. In Ephesians 1.17, a tremendous prayer that the Apostle Paul gives to believers. Ephesians 1 Verse 17, I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. That's what we are to strive for, is to know Him who is the source of our inheritance, to know Him better. When we study Scripture, when we come together in Bible study or Sunday school or time of preaching and teaching, that is what we're here for, is to know Him better, to have a greater understanding of who it is we serve, to have a greater understanding of our inheritance, have a greater understanding of the source of our inheritance. And this is God our Father. You also see there that it says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they call a compound praise in theolo theological terms. The reason is, is because when you see the term Lord Jesus Christ, you're covering it all. You are covering Lord who is sovereign, omnipotent God, El Shaddai, God Almighty. You're covering the word Jesus who says, I am human. I was carnal. I come. There is nothing you can experience that I have not experienced. And you have Christ who is the anointed king, the Messiah. So when you see a statement, and many authors in the New Testament use the statement that says, Lord Jesus Christ, they are saying, Sovereign God who walked as a man, anointed Messiah. All in one statement. Tremendous praise in those three words. And this is contradictory to the way the Hebrews and the Jews spoke. Because it was God the Father of Egypt, or God the Father of Israel, who freed him from Egypt. That's when the Hebrews prayed, that's how they prayed. And here you have Peter, a Hebrew, say, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this would have been offensive to those who were still in ground in Judaism. But that is the source of our inheritance. It's eternal. It comes from God. The, man, the same being who made the world in six days. The same being who breathed into Adam's nostrils and gave life from dirt. The same being who can make an axe head float. The same being who could separate the Red Sea. The same being who can stop the rotation of the earth so jo uh, Joshua continue the battle. The same being who raised Christ from the grave has given you an inheritance and has adopted you into the kingdom of heaven. But we need to look at the motive of our inheritance. The motive of our inheritance. Very simple. In His great mercy, He has given. 
As I did a word study on the word mercy, which is the motive, it's amazing how the word mercy and the word grace are interwoven together. Tremendously interwoven. It was mercy that God shared at that cross. We, mercy in man is to take him from his miserable condition. That is mercy. Before salvation, we were dead in sin and trespasses. We were fallen and we were slaves to sin. Naked and depraved. Blind. And by mercy, we have been called out of that. Mercy is to change our condition. Grace changes our position. Grace takes us from guilt to acquittal. Mercy takes us from misery to glory. That is the mercy that God gives us for our eternal inheritance. This is the mercy. When you speak of Jesus in the gospel record, of healing the blind, uh, the lepers, raising the dead, this was all mercy. All mercy. If you look through the gospel records, you'll see that him doing miracles was not to win people to the kingdom. We have no record that anyone during a miracle was won to the kingdom. But all of these were done to show God's mercy and validate that he who sent him was Jehovah. In Exodus 34, 6, it says the Lord is merciful. He has mercy on us. The psalmist writes in Psalm 108.4, God's mercy is far above the heavens. That statement says that God's mercy is greater than all conditions. There is no condition that we can generate in this world that His mercy cannot overcome. Micah, minor prophet, Chapter, or chapter 7, verse 18 says that God delights in His mercy. That's a tremendous encouragement to know that He delights in His mercy. For we all know we need mercy. It's free, it's abundant, and it's eternal. God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. And that is the motive of our inheritance, to show the mercy that God has for us. Can we ever be thankful enough for the mercy that God has showed us? I mean, it's just mercy that He granted us another week to come together. It is just mercy that He'll grant us however many days that we have left in our lives. It is pure mercy. Mercy had to have a means to come into. God has His mercy. He wanted to show it, and He shows it to His children. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. This is the means that mercy came to humanity. Jeremiah the prophet said, A leopard cannot change his spots. An Ethiopian cannot change his skin. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The only way we can do good is by the new birth. The only way. We can do actions... But without the new birth, they're worthless. My most righteous deeds are as filthy rags, the Apostle Paul tells us. In Christ, we are a new creation, new, a new birth, born again 
is what we hear. Our old nature, before salvation, we were the heirs to wrath. We were the heirs to a consuming flame. But now we are heirs to His righteousness and heirs to His kingdom. Verse 23 of this chapter, Peter brings up, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, enduring Word of God. That's how we are born again. We are not born of perishable seed, that of sin. As Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, your father the devil, that's a perishable seed. Humanity is dying. The curse from Adam and Eve is still on us. But we are born again in the Spirit to an unperishable seed and that someday we will step forward in glory. Verse 25 of that same chapter, it says, But the word of the Lord stands forever, and in this and this is the word that was preached to you. We preach the word, men hear it, God activates the faith in them, and they are born again. They are renewed. A good example, probably the best example of born again is in John. If you turn with me, John chapter 3, verses 3 and following. <clears throat> now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are, you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing. Okay, Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. Nicodemus, history tells us that Nicodemus was a teacher of the Pharisees. He was high in, in, in the Pharisaical council. He was like the ruler of the Pharisees. And when you take this man... He was there present at Christ's trial. He was the, in the arena with them. He was the one who taught the Jews all of the, the laws, the ceremonial and traditional laws. This is the same man. And he comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to be seen with this man. He comes with him at night and he says, you've got to be of God because you're doing miracles. <clears throat> Jesus tells him in verse 3, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can come to the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And of course, Nicodemus makes that statement. How can a man be born again? He surely cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb. Basically what he's telling this man is that you have a teacher of the Pharisees. You have a man who bases his worthiness in the kingdom of heaven on works. On all that he has done. And he is coming... To say, what can I add to my works that will get me in the kingdom? And Jesus said, nothing. Everything you've done is waste. When he says, you must be born again, he says, all the time that you've spent is useless. Has nothing to do with it. You can't get there unless you're born again. Now, I'd have been insulted, but Nicodemus continued on. How can a man be born again? Surely he cannot enter a second time into the womb. And I tell you the truth, no one entered his kingdom unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And as we continues on, he explains to Nicodemus, and he goes back to a man who is astute in the law, who is astute in the Old Testament writings. And he takes him back to Moses. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Okay, he's speaking of a time when the children were wandering in the desert. 
The Jews had forsaken God and had turned their back on God. All that he had done for them, they had turned their back on him. So God gave them snakes among the nation of Israel, and these snakes began biting and killing the Jews. And the only way that they could get rid of these snakes was to look at this pole that Moses put a serpent's head on. What they were doing is looking away from their sin and looking to him who can guide you, who can save you. That's Numbers 21.7. The nation of Israel says we have sinned. They were turning from their sin and looked to the means to cleanse that sin. And it is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, a man who knew what Jesus was saying. He knows what Jesus was saying. We don't have a record on whether Nicodemus was saved or not. Uh, some believe that we do because he was involved in, in gathering his body. But um, I, I'll find out when I get there. But he is saying until the Son of God is lifted up and exalted, meaning that until you repent from your sins, you look away from your sins and look to him who is able, then you shall be born again. You will have the new birth. He cut at Nicodemus' self-righteousness. The new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. You are washed in the Word, and the result is a living hope. It is a quality of life. Because you live in a hope that says, I do not look at my sin, and I look at Him who has saved me from my sin, and I move forward on that path, not where I was. You think of all the things in that go on in society that men put their hope into, put their, their invested their time into, and, and they think that they are got, have their hope. We all know the tragedy of O.J. Simpson this week. Look at this. This man had his hope in everything that the world has to offer, and look where he's at. That is not hope. And even if you make millions and millions of dollars, at some point in time, that inheritance, they're just going to fight over it when you die anyway. So what is your hope really in? And the hope that we are being taught here is that newborn hope again. The means of that inheritance is the rebirth. It's coming to that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 3.13, he tells us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where righteousness will dwell. Paul tells us to die is gain, to step in eternal righteousness. The hope that a believer has covers us so that when death does come, our hope is finally fulfilled because we stand first face to face with him who saved us. That is what our hope is. Our hope, our inheritance is salvation, spending eternity in righteousness. Spending eternity in a place where there is no sin. No sin whatsoever. That is our inheritance. So living hope. John 14, 19. Jesus tells us of the resurrection. Because I live, you, you shall live also. We all know the verse that says, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever believes in me shall never die as he raised Lazarus from the grave. This is the means of our inheritance. This is how God, who is the source of our inheritance, 
by His mercy, which is the motive of our inheritance, gives to each of His children their inheritance. is by the rebirth, the cleansing of your spirit. We are looking for a time when we will give up this sinful body and we will take this body and lay it away and it will go to dust and we will receive a resurrected body that is as sinless as the spirit is. That is our eternal inheritance. That is what we are looking for. Now then, if we look at the nature of our inheritance, back to 1 Peter, the nature of our inheritance that we receive from God by His mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that our inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. Interesting words. Perish, spoil, or fade. Some will say decay. The actual translation here is you speaking of in a military term. The word that we have, perish, and it means unravaged by invading armies. So our inheritance can never be ravaged by invading armies. The land of Canaan given to Israel has been ravaged time and time and time again. It was an earthly inheritance, but it's here in this world where sin abounds. Ironically, the city of Jerusalem has been leveled 17 times in history, absolutely taken down. And a really odd coincidence is that the word Jerusalem means dwelling of peace. And uh, we do know that there is coming a time when it will be a dwelling of peace, um, but not by man's power, not by man's treaties. But yet, Israel was given the land. You have to understand that in this world today, the only real property owners that there are are the Jews. Because they have title deed from God who made it all. That's why when you look through history, you see nothing but fighting there because the Jews do not want to give up what God has given them. The king of Assyria, Hafad Hassad, said the problem with the treaties with the Jews is that the Jews believe the Bible. Sounds good to me. But that's why there will never be peace there. Because those Jews, they believe the Bible. And those Jews have the audacity to say they are God's chosen people and this land that I live in, God give me. And the Arabs don't really care much for that. But our... Our inheritance, the royal priesthood, is in heaven. This world is consumed with sin. We are looking at a place that everything decays. Everything is defective. I mean, how many of us have bought a new car and have to keep taking it in and have it serviced? How many times do you, when you go and purchase something, the first thing you want to know is, what's the warranty say? Everything we have is defective. Our bodies are defective. From the moment they enter the atmosphere, they immediately begin dying. Tremendous. But sin permeates everything. Paul tells us in Romans that all of creation groans in expectation of the return of Christ. Have you ever cut the grass and the only thing that ever comes back up is weeds? That's part of sin. 
But everything that we see, everything that we look on, everything that we behold is being destroyed by sin. Sin is destroying it. But our fortune, our inheritance, it cannot be spent. It cannot be diminished. But it also cannot be taken by invading armies. And it is not under the influence of sin. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, Lay up your treasure in heaven. Moth and rust cannot corrupt. And the thief cannot steal it. All the places that you think about in this world that you can put your inheritance, is there any of them safe? Is there any place in this world right now that you can store something that is dear to you and know that it cannot be touched? There is no place. Because there's invading armies, there are thieves, there's rust, there's decay, and everything. Our treasure in heaven is safe. But it will never spoil. It's imperishable. Nowhere on earth can you put something that it cannot be touched or be perished. But our treasure that God is guarding is in heaven. It cannot be touched. It cannot be defiled. It's unpolluted. Everything in this world is touched by sin. Everything. There is absolutely nothing in this world that is not touched by sin. Period. But where our treasure is, is not touched by sin. Sin cannot have access to it. Decay cannot have access to it. It cannot spoil. Basically, the world has leprosy. If you know anything about leprosy, it is a slow rotting from the inside out. And the world is basically rotting from the inside out. And this rot is sin. There is nothing we can do about it. God is in control. He's going to let it allow it to run its course. And there is coming a time in the future that it will be dealt with once and for all. Our inheritance. Paul, Peter writing to these persecuted Christians is saying, get your eyes off of your problems. Get your eyes off of the worries of this world and know that you have an eternal inheritance that cannot be touched by sin. It cannot be touched by thieves. It is set aside by the rebirth, the new birth, being born again by the Spirit of God in a place where sin cannot touch it. It can never fade. Fading... This word is actually you speaking of, of flowers. It will never lose its beauty because in heaven there is no sin. Time cannot touch it because it's in a timeless place. And sin cannot touch it because it's in a sinless place. Peter tells us a little later in chapter 5, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade. It will never lose its radiance. I remember during Mother's Day we were getting flowers for our mother's and they asked me what kind of flowers I wanted. And I said, well, just flower flowers. You know, I'm, I'm into flowers. They said, well, you want carnations? They last longer. And I said, if you cut off a flower, doesn't it die? And I said, yeah, but a carnation will last longer than a rose. Give me the roses. They're all going to die. And you see a flower, when you bring it 
in a vase or however it's been cut off. It is extremely beautiful, but for just a short time. But where we are going and where our inheritance is, that eternal salvation never loses that beauty, never will fade from its glory, never from its shining will it be tarnished. It's the safest place that there is. In Revelations 21, 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. It's safe. Our inheritance is in heaven. Never know what it means to perish. Our inheritance never know what it means to spoil or to fade. The radiant beauty of God will be there on it all the time. It's secure. We might be saying, uh, okay, my inheritance is in heaven and I received it through the new birth into a living hope. But what about me? Can somebody get my inheritance? What if somebody gets there before me and spends my inheritance? It is shielded by God, verse 5. And you are shielded by God. You have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. There's my inheritance. Who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are shielded by God. That is the security of our inheritance. That is our security while we are here. While we are busy about our Father's work here in a dying, decaying place, we are secure. But so is our inheritance. No one is going to get there before me and get Terry's inheritance. It's sitting there waiting on me. I need to be about my Father's work, as so each of us should be. And you each have your inheritance that when you get there, you're going to get it. And you'll receive it. No one's going to get it. It's not that I'm going to beat my wife there and get hers and mine both. All right? And it's not that she's going to beat me there and get mine and have it spent before I get there. Okay? You've seen the little bumper stickers that on the Winnebago's we are spending our children's inheritance? We can't do that. You're not going to spend it. It's set aside. God Almighty is guarding us. He keep, keeps our treasure in His strength, but He also keeps His chosen ones. Our part is faith. We see there, we are kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. You understand that? It is your faith that continues to keep your inheritance and it continues to... You can rest in the assurance that God is protecting you. Even if you're about to be martyred, you can rest in the faith that says God is going to protect you. This is not this thing we're hearing today that says if I have faith, then I'm not going to get a disease. If I have faith, I'm not going to have a heart attack. It is not this that if I have faith, I'm not going to fall out of an airplane and die. This faith says God has chosen me before the foundations of the earth. He has set me aside to do His work. Until that time, my race is run. That is the faith that is spoken of here. It is our part to keep the faith. But the faith comes from God. Have you heard people ask, how are you saved? And what is the statement? You are saved by grace through what? Faith. 
All right? Grace is unmerited favor. All right? You can't do anything to deserve it. You can't ever do enough to please Him. All right? It is unmerited favor and it is by your belief that you are saved. Your inheritance is awaiting you by your faith. Your inheritance, your salvation is in your faith. It's like Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. Right? God's part was the lions weren't hungry. Daniel's part was faith that God was going to save him. When the ark stepped into the Jordan River to go into the promised land, they had to step into the river. It wasn't you stand there and open up the river and we coming in. It was take a step, walk into the river. And when they walked in the river, the Jordan River opened up and the uh, nation of Israel went into the land that God had given them. It is their faith. We are protected by God with sustaining and persevering faith. No matter what this world brings against us, our faith is to know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that no temptation has seized you except that is common to, God, common to man and God is faithful and just to provide a way out. These are the faith. This is part of our faith in action. We are saved through faith and we are kept by faith. We have not seen all that will be revealed. Because we see also here in verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is a process. Salvation takes place at the point of entrance of the Holy Spirit. Salvation means that I've been rescued. But my salvation at that point of rescue did not take me out of here. I would be interested to see uh, as we look, as we step into glory and we can see what our life had for us, uh, probably how many times we were rescued without ever knowing it. We are positionally saved. We are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But there is coming a time when everyone here, salvation will come to its totality. There's coming a time that you are going to step into eternity and then you will see the totality of your salvation. I would like to tell you that I comprehend it and I know what it's going to be like and how it's going to be, uh, but I can't. I see the Apostle John fall flat on his face after he spent all that time with Christ. Uh, I can't. I can't envision it. I can tell you what the Bible says and I can tell you what my feeble mind would try to share with you of the glory and the light and, and the sign that is there in heaven. But to understand what it means to give up a dying body and to step into an eternal place where there is no sin, I can't comprehend that. I cannot comp I don't I don't understand that. But I look forward to it. I pray that as we conclude this message that we will understand that our inheritance is in heaven. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And I pray that each of us as best as God will allow you will grab a hold of that truth 
And understand that if He never gives you anything but eternal life, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But yet He has stored for us under His protection an eternal inheritance that cannot spoil, it cannot fade, and it cannot be perished by any means. It is not susceptible to sin. And that is what we need to have our focus on. Be busy about our Father's work at this time, knowing that the inheritance is there. Let us pray. Gracious, gracious Father, Father, we just praise You for an inheritance. We praise You for Your mercy. We praise You for Your grace. Father, I do not know why we were chosen. Father, I do not know the glory, the magnitude of our inheritance. But Father, I eagerly await that time when it will be revealed to me in its totality. Father, I pray that in our hearts we will realize what was done for us, the mercy that was shed for us, the grace that was given for us. Father, I pray that each one of us will grab a hold of the thought and the understanding that we are part of the body of Christ. For the world to see Christ today, they must see it in our lives and they must see it in our fellowship. Father, I pray that we don't take each other for granted. I pray that we will continue to hunger for your truths and to continue to study um, to the degree that you have called us to. Father, I pray that you will be glorified in each of our walks and that, Father, we will rest in the wisdom and the knowledge that you grant us by your Holy Spirit and your written word. Father, let us walk worthy of our calling. Let us rest in the assurance that you have chosen us. We are a holy nation and we are a royal priesthood. Until that time that we see our, son, our Savior face to face, Lord, may we continue to rest in these assurances and know that we have an inheritance that is beyond human comprehension. Father, we rest in these things. In your son's precious name, amen. We do want to challenge those who are here this morning. If this seems hard to understand or just doesn't seem to make sense, it may be that you have not surrendered to our Lord and Savior. It may mean that you have not understood His great mercy. You may have not understand the grace that He is holding out to humanity. If this seems confusing to you, that we can go through a world of persecution, of dying, and look forward to an eternal inheritance, I would ask that you would speak to myself or to Hank or Willie so that we can express to you what this eternal inheritance is and express to you what it means to be indwelt with the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to walk in the fullness of life. If you understand this, and yet are being disobedient in believers' baptism? Ask yourself why. Because you have an eternal inheritance, and we'll study a little 
later in this chapter that is not perishable and more precious than gold or silver. What was done for us 2,000 years ago on a cross cannot be compared to in history. What was done for us on that cross cannot come close to anything this world offers. God is freely offering by His mercy and His grace and inheritance. Why can we not obey? If you are looking for a fellowship that stands firm on God's promises, that stands firm on the validity of Scripture, and are striving to know God in a more intimate way in each of our lives, then I would tell you that this is what I am striving for, and I know this is what the elders are striving for. And I would encourage you to be part of it. I expect great and mighty things, because the Lord has promised that if we preach the word, it will not come back void. 